Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. If you're a first-time guest with us this morning, we are going through the book of Hebrews. And uh, we are now up to chapter 3. And today we're going to be looking at the subject matter, Jesus greater than Moses, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus greater than Moses, crowned with glory and honor. And keep those hinges on your Bible well-oiled this morning because we're going to be turning around to different places. You may want to find John chapter 10 and Romans chapter 8. That would be two good places to go ahead and locate in your scripture uh, as well. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all, all those who left Egypt led by Moses... And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Lord, we ask this morning that you would bless the reading of your word. God, that you would give us ears and hearts to listen. And God, I pray that unbelief would not be in us. But that in all things we would trust you. 
And that our lives in the way that we follow you would reveal our hearts that we are indeed trusting you. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Folks, periodically there are human figures, human figures that come along. They come along on the pages of history and their lives forever change who we are. Or their lives forever change how something is done. Now, in this country, we could look back to figures like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln as examples of that. I want to say to you this morning that it's been the same way in the church and in biblical history. For instance, we have the apostles. Some of those whom God inspired to write Holy Scripture, men like Simon Peter and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, those would be examples. And then there were men that came right after the time of the Apostles. The age of the patristics, the church fathers. These were men who stood against early heresies and helped to give us early Christian creeds based upon the truth of Scripture that would serve as summaries of what Orthodox Christian faith is. Now one of those church fathers would be a man by the name of Athanasius. I doubt, we na- I doubt anybody names their sons Athanasius today. But Athanasius was a great man in church history. He's called Athanasius the Great by some. He was described by another leader as a pillar of the church. The Eastern Orthodox Church calls him the father of orthodoxy. One historian notes that he was one of the greatest champions of all time of true biblical thoughts on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He wrote and spoke much about the incarnation. He stood strong against Arianism. Arianism was a heresy that assigned a lower status to Jesus, saying that Jesus was a created being. That he was not eternal God, the Son. He was a created being. The Jehovah Witnesses today would be modern day examples of those who follow the Arian heresy of denying the Trinity and denying the place of Jesus. Well, Athanasius was a man greatly used of God to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. Then we come down to the period of the Reformation and we have great figures like Martin Luther and John Calvin. Just as in our secular history, heroes are easy to find. And again, it's the same way in church history. It's obviously the same way in biblical history. Folks, as we think about biblical history, think of some of the great names. Think of some of the great saints on the pages of the Bible. Think with me about the Old Testament. Who would some of those great names be? It would be men like Abraham and his wife, Sarah. How about Jacob? 
Joseph. Rahab, who risked her life and hid the spies. Deborah. Moses. King David. Great figures on the pages of the Old Testament. Now, as we think about some of these figures, it would be hard to overestimate the importance of Moses to the Hebrew people. We first learn about Moses in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh had given the order that all of the male babies of the Hebrews would be killed. What did Moses' mother do? She hid him in a basket and put him at the edge of the Nile. Now we know the story well, how the baby Moses was discovered and he ended up being raised in Pharaoh's household. And then one day as he got older, he was going out to see what was going on with his people and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And so he killed that Egyptian. Well, the next day it was discovered what he did. And so from that point on, for the next 40 years, Moses was a man on the run. While tending his father-in-law's flocks, 40 years later, God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And God called him to go back to Egypt and deliver the Hebrew people, lead them out of the land of Egypt to the land that God was going to give to them. And that's what Moses did. He protested at first, he made excuses at first, but in the final analysis, he obeyed God, he went back to Egypt, he demanded that Pharaoh let the people go, and through all the great plagues that God brought on the the Egyptian people, Pharaoh finally allowed the Hebrews to go. And so Moses was the deliverer. The Old Testament also describes him as a great prophet. In fact, Numbers 12, 6 to 8 says that God spoke to Moses face to face. Imagine that. Moses was the lawgiver. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone as well as giving Moses the other laws that we find in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch being, of course, the first five books of the Bible. Moses was also a historian. Jesus and the New Testament writers affirm the truth that it was Moses who wrote the Pentateuch. And so deliverer, prophet, lawgiver, historian, all of those are words that we could use to describe this man, Moses. But in spite of all of these lofty titles, Numbers 12.3 says that Moses was the most humble and meek man on the face of the earth. Moses was revered by his people. Perhaps in part for this reason, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land after he sinned by striking the rock. And the Bible says that God himself buried Moses in an undisclosed grave, probably so they wouldn't make an idol out of his grave or out of his bones. 
But in chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, we are reminded that in Jesus Christ, we have one who is greater than Moses. Just like Jesus is greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses. Folks, the, the audience of the book of Hebrews is being warned over and over again that they must not turn aside from Jesus. They must not revert back to the Old Testament because what they have in Jesus is better. God in these last days has spoken through his son. He is, he is our Lord. He's our Savior. He's the mediator of the new covenant. He's the only one that leads us to God. The old covenant is now obsolete. And so they need to remain in Christ. And they need to press on in their faith. Well here in chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews. We also find what is the second warning passage in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is structured around these different warning passages. And each one of them is very stern in what they tell us. I want you to remember the overall context of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written, I believe, primarily to Jewish believers... That doesn't mean that Gentiles weren't in the audience because we know that some Gentiles became God-fearers. They worshipped Yahweh. They became members of the the community of faith in the synagogues and, and in the temple. Some have even made the case that Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish priests who had now become obedient to the Christian faith. The book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the passage on deacons, what's believed to be the first passage on deacons, it describes that after the church handled the conflict that the way they did, there was such a powerful witness that the church was giving to the community. The book of Acts tells us that there were a significant number of Jewish priests who came to Jesus Christ and became followers of him. Some scholars believe they're the audience, they're the main audience behind the book of Hebrews. As I read the book of Hebrews, I see at least the possibility of multiple groups. There were some in the congregation who were beginning to question whether or not they wanted to continue being Christians. It would be safer for the moment to go back to their Jewish faith so that they could avoid persecution. He's telling them they can't go back. I also see the possibility that there were probably those in the congregation who were on the fringes of becoming Christians. But because of all the persecution Christians were getting, they were thinking of also staying put in Judaism. Now the warnings are directed to stir the people up to continue in Christ. He says here, therefore, and he connects that to the end of chapter 2. He says, therefore, holy brethren, as you look at verse 1, he's appealing to them not only as fellow Jews, but as fellow Christians. He says, partakers of a heavenly calling. They have a heavenly calling. 
And so, folks, he's reminding them right off in this chapter of things that every single Christian needs to be mindful of. You and I need to be mindful that we are holy. You may not feel holy. And at times you may not be holy in practice, but in position you are indeed holy. From the moment you were born again, God set you apart as being holy. You were set apart as God's own possession. And secondly, God's holy people have a heavenly calling. Whatever you do on the face of the earth, you must always remember that you have a higher calling. Whatever your career is, whatever your work or your function in society is, the number one claim on your life is that you have a heavenly calling to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. How are you doing at living out that holy heavenly calling? You and I need to remember every day of our lives that we have been bought with a price with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so how are you doing at living out that holy heavenly calling? I want you to remember that this week as maybe you're tempted to cheat on a test or cut a corner at work. Or be unkind to somebody at work. I want you to remember this week. You have been bought with a price. And so the Bible says you're to glorify God in all that you do. And if you can't glorify God in what you're doing. Then maybe you need to question what you're doing. We're going to see this morning that to live as a Christian is to receive a heavenly calling. And in that heavenly calling, you and I are to be salt and light. And we're to live as ambassadors for Christ. Well, to people like that, what does he say? First of all, I want you to see that he tells them to look to Jesus. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confidence, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. We need to look to Jesus. Translations deal with verse 1 differently. Some say, consider Jesus. Some say, take note of Jesus. Actually, I believe the NIV gets it best here. They capture the heart of what the word really means. And the word means that they are to fix their gaze. They are to fix their eyes upon Jesus. I want you to remember they're going through trials. In the midst of trials, what do you and I need to do? We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. James says we're going to fall into various trials of different sorts. And we need to count it a privilege. Believe it or not, he says, uh, we need to rejoice in it and, and count it a privilege when we fall into various trials. We don't go looking for various trials. We fall into them. And James says they're of all different sizes and shapes and colors. And in the midst of trials, it's so easy to get discouraged. 
It's so easy just to focus on the circumstance itself that you might be going through at the moment. But the writer of Hebrews here is saying in the midst of your trials, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one that's going to be able to give you wisdom and strength to make it through it. Hebrews 12, we're going to be told the same thing all over again. And we're going to be told that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And he experienced trials too. In fact, more so than any of us. And he experienced them perfectly without any sin. And he trusted in God. And so he's able to come to your aid and my aid. Well, the writer of Hebrews here says, look to Jesus. And first of all, notice he says, fix your thoughts on him because of who he is. Here he refers to Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle refers to one sent. In John's gospel, we see an emphasis on Jesus being sent by the Father. In John 20, 21, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, even so send I you. High priest says to us that the old covenant system is complete in Christ. Jesus is the climax of that long line of priests that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus is our new high priest. We don't need anyone else. Jesus is the one who opens the way into the very presence of God. Jesus is our advocate. He's our propitiation, the sin sacrifice who received all the wrath of God against sin. And he's our high priest. And as such, he brings God to man and man to God. He's the bridge between man and God. And so in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your hardships, in the midst of your troubles, what do you need to do? You need to fix your eyes on Jesus and look to him. Well, secondly here, he says, fix your thoughts on him because of what he did. Verse 2 says, he was faithful. Remember how in that high priestly prayer in John 17, at the beginning of that high priestly prayer, Jesus said, Father, what you have given me to do, I have done. He was faithful. Well, then he says, fix your thoughts on him because he's greater than Moses. Now again, I want you to see that to the average Jew, no man was greater than Moses. But folks, the fact of the matter is that Moses was a servant. And I certainly don't mean any disrespect in that. No disrespect is intended at all. But Moses was just a servant. Now how does all of this apply to us here in Concord, North Carolina in 2018. Well, think about this. What did the Pharisees emphasize when they pointed to Moses? They were emphasizing the law. Are people like that today? 
You better believe it. There are people who think if they keep the golden rule or if they love their neighbor as their self or if they obey the Ten Commandments or if they just live good in general, they will be saved. But what does Romans 3 remind us of? Romans 3 reminds us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and in and of ourselves there is no one who is good. Good in the sense of being able to to be that bridge to God. No one is good. And Paul in Romans chapter 3 goes on to conclude, By the deeds of the law, no one will be justified in the sight of God. No one. In fact, the law is a tutor, as Galatians tells us. It's a schoolmaster. Leading us to Christ. The law is a mirror that shows us our condition. It shows us our sin and need of God. And while the law shows us that, while the law reveals that, the law in and of itself can't fix it. We need something more than Moses. We need something more than the law. We need Jesus and the grace and truth that he brings. Jesus is more than a servant. Jesus is a son. The son. The only begotten son. And the son is the heir in a household. The servant will always be just a servant. And servants come and go. But the son in a household is the heir Hebrews 1, 2 told us that Jesus is the heir of all things. So Jesus was faithful as a son over his house. And folks, we are that house. We need to remember that. The house of God is not bricks and mortar. The people of God are the house of God. The people of God are the dwelling place of God. God lives and, and works in our midst let's think about the house of God a moment one of the saddest passages in the Old Testament is in the book of Ezekiel when the glory of God departed from the temple Jesus spoke of his body as a temple and he said destroy this temple and I'll raise it again I'll rise it again in three days in the church you and I must remember that we are God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3 9 says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. He dwells in us, we are His house. And so, what do we need to do? We need to look to Jesus. Jesus will take care of us, Jesus will not fail. The going may get tough at times, but Jesus will not fail. We need to keep our eyes on Him. Secondly, we need to listen to Jesus and guard your heart. Look at what He says beginning in verse 7. 
Beginning in verse 7, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the, in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We need to listen to Jesus. Not only look to him, but listen to him and guard our hearts. And notice what he points out here, that listening is urgent. We must do more than hear. Guys, do your wives ever say, I know you're hearing me, but are you listening to me? Any wives that ever say that? We've got to do more than hear. We've got to listen and we've got to act on what we hear. And notice what he says about urgency. He says, today. Folks, to hear the voice of God through his word is a privilege. I want you to understand what a high and lofty privilege it is to be able to have a copy of God's word and hear God as he speaks through his word. To have instruction from God is a privilege. And of course, along with every privilege comes what? responsibility we can never presume upon God if God moves in your heart he may not move that way again I think of the days of Noah when God said my spirit will not always strive with man I think about a time in history that D.L. Moody, the Billy Graham of his day, was preaching a crusade in Chicago, the largest crusade that he had preached in Chicago. And he preached on the text out of Matthew 27, 22, where, where the Bible tells us, what will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? The date was October 8, 1871. What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And D.L. Moody said, I want you to go home this week and I want you to think about that. Go home this week and think about that. And then the song leader, Ira Sankey, got up and led in an invitation hymn. Today the Savior calls for refuge fly. The storm of justice falls And death is nigh. And they left the meeting and went home. That night the great fire of Chicago happened and many of those people died. D.L. Moody said, never again will I preach a message and just tell people to think about it. You've got to act on it. And you've got to do so now if God is calling. In the scripture when God speaks the opportunity is then. Think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus come down from that tree. Today I'm going to your house. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus told him what he needed to do. And the Bible says he turned away sad. 
2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not only may you not get another chance, but saying no to God does something to the heart. It hardens the heart. And, and, and it becomes easier and easier to say no. Just read Romans 1, what Romans 1 says about either embracing the gospel or turning away from the gospel. You embrace it, Romans 1, 16 and 17 says it brings salvation that's the power of God to the Jew first then to the Gentile beginning in verse 18 Paul describes what happens to people when they start suppressing the truth of God and turning away hard heart that leads you into all sorts of things well as an example of hardening their hearts the writer of Hebrews calls on them to remember their Jewish history he takes them back to the wilderness wanderings they had witnessed the hand of God against Pharaoh they even witnessed the parting of the Red Sea and yet look at what they did in the wilderness they started whining and complaining all the time they didn't have meat they didn't have water they said were there not enough graves in Egypt did you have to leave us out, lead us out here to die now folks think about how hard their hearts were they just witnessed all the miracles all the plagues that God had brought against the Egyptians and yet they didn't experience those plagues then the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians but not theirs God let them out here they go up to the edge of the Red Sea they're trapped they see God part the waters of the Red Sea they go through on dry ground Pharaoh's army is drowned yet they get on the other side of that out in the wilderness and immediately what do they start doing why did you bring us out here hard-hearted just unbelievable what they did and then later on in their history they get up to the edge of the promised land and and uh, the 12 spies are sent in 10 come back with the bad report Joshua and Caleb with the good report they believe the 10 they say we can't do it God's God has led them to that moment this is what it's all about and yet they they say we can't do it and what did God say with the exception of Joshua and Caleb they shall not enter into my rest and God let that crowd die off in the wilderness giving time for the younger ones to grow and then God led them in Now, as we're going to see in chapter 4, Canaan, the land of rest, is a type or a picture of our salvation and of our ultimate rest in heaven. We're going to see how all of, all of that is a picture of the rest that God offers us now in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have rest from striving. We have rest from human works. We have rest even now in Christ. And ultimately we will have an eternal, unending rest in heaven. Now, it's not talking about we're going to get to heaven and sleep. It's not talking about sleeping. 
We're just going to be at rest from all of the effects of sin that we now experience. We're going to be with God in heaven where he's made all things new. Amen? And so the message the writer of Hebrews is giving is not only look to Jesus in your need, but you better listen to the message of Christ because in the message of Christ, in the gospel, God is speaking. It's possible to harden your heart. But you better not harden your heart. Because if you harden your heart and reject the gospel, you're going to be just like those in the Old Testament who did not enter into the promised land and into God's rest. Well, secondly here, he says, failing to listen, it actually reveals what's in your heart. Look at verse 12. We're going to see here that failing to listen shows unbelief. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Failing to listen to God is serious. It shows unbelief. To have a message from God and not to act on it is rejecting the living God and falling away from Him. He's warning them here, folks. If they do not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have fallen away from the living God. Because again, back to chapter 1, in these last days, God is speaking to us how? In His Son. God's not working in the world apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's final and greatest revelation. Now folks, I want to walk you through some tough thoughts. I know it's getting late, but let me, let me walk you through some tough things, okay? Where not all denominations agree on this passage, okay? I want you to go back to verse 6. Look at verse 6. How does verse 6 be, uh, what's it say? If. Look Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Look at verse 14. What's he say in verse 14? For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If, if, and falling away. What's he talking about? A lot lot of people are shaken up by those statements. They think, "Uh uh-oh, that means I can lose my salvation. I can have it and lose it. I don't believe for a second That's what this passage or the New Testament is teaching. Turn back to John chapter 10 with me a moment. John chapter 10. Begin reading with me verse 27. What did Jesus say there? My sheep, John chapter 10 verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. If it wasn't, what, what's eternal life mean? 
means eternal. If you could lose it, then Jesus would have to say something like, you know, I give this one five-year life, ten-year life. <laughs> Whenever they fall away, that's, that, that's when it ends. No, Jesus said, I give to them eternal life. But I want you to listen to Romans chapter 8. Find Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 29. Romans 8, 29. What's Paul say there? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now listen to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's been called the golden chain. The golden chain of redemption. What's amazing about that passage is the tenses. And what it's pointing out is when, when, when this happens, the, the next thing is a necessity. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And in other words, what God starts, he finishes. God will finish it. You won't be lopped off in the middle of it. It, 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 is, it is a golden chain that when it begins, uh, again, read verse, verse 29, uh, uh, excuse me, 30. Look at it again. Those whom he predestined, he called. A divine certainty. And those whom he called, he justified. A divine certainty. And those whom he justified, he also did what? He glorified. And then also write down 1 Peter 1 verses 4 and 5. Because there Peter talks about your heavenly inheritance is being reserved for you and you're being reserved for it. And so God is protecting you at both ends of the spectrum. He's protecting you for your inheritance and he's protecting your inheritance and saving it for you. I think the teaching of the word of God is clear. The person who is saved remains saved. That doesn't mean that you won't sin and stumble from time to time. I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. But your salvation is certain. Not because of your keeping power, but because his keeping power of you. Somebody said it well. I don't just believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe in the perseverance of the Savior. That says it well. Now, the mark that we are truly saved is that we continue. Give me a few minutes extra this morning, okay? I want you to, this is important. I want you to see this. John chapter 8, what's John chapter 8 say? What's Jesus say there? Beginning in verse 31, John 8, 
John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Abide in his word. And then what's John say in 1 John 2, 19? John says they weren't really of us. They weren't really saved because if they were saved, they would have remained. But the fact that they left the church, they left left the body of Christ shows what? That they were never true members of the body of Christ. So the mark that you're saved is that you continue. You continue. Now folks, the opposite of that is true too. You can be in the company of believers and not be a believer. Do you hear me there? You can be in the company of believers and not be a believer. And guess what's going to show that over time? Your life will. It's just like those in the wilderness. The unbelievers were separated out in the end. They saw God working. They were in the company of Moses and Aaron and those who had come out of Egypt. And yet they did not believe. What Jesus say in one of his parables? He says there's the wheat and the tares and they coexist together. The disciple said you want us to separate the tares? No, 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 no. Because in separating the tares out you might pull up some of the wheat. Just let them coexist. And in the end the angels will make the separation. And Jesus said in Matthew 10, the one who endures, you're going to be tested, you're going to be persecuted, Jesus said, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Folks, what's the Bible teaching? It's not teaching that they had it and lost it. What it's teaching is they never had it. Because if you got it, he's going to keep it. He's going to keep you. Amen? Now, the, the, the evidence of a lack of re- regeneration is going to show up in several ways. The writer of Hebrews talks about it here. Verse 6, we've just been talking about it. There's going to be a lack of persevering. Verse 10 says that there will be continual, persistent sin. 1 John 1 says the same thing. Continual, persistent sin. A lifestyle of sin. A lifestyle of living in darkness. Verse 12 in Hebrews 3 speaks of ultimately such a person falls away proving that they were not genuine. The saved will persevere. Those who aren't saved, their life will show. Even if they're in the company of believers, their life will eventually show that they were never truly, genuinely born again. So what does he say in closing in verse 13? Encourage one another. He says day after day, Encourage one another. 
Hebrews 10 is going to tell us the same thing. And it's going to say that's the reason we need to come to church on a regular basis. So we can encourage one another, stir one another up, and provoke one another to love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Now that brings up something to chew on, doesn't it? And I want to be careful here because I know somebody's going to mishear, mishear what I'm saying. The book of Hebrews is clear. We're to meet together and we're to encourage one another. So here's a question. Somebody who claims to be in Christ and habitually, habitually, get that word, habitually, stays away from a church family. They just stay away from church. Oh, they, they say they're a Christian, but the book of Hebrews is commanding us to meet together regularly and encourage one another. It's a command in Hebrews 10. So those who stay away, just blow off church membership. And church activity, church attendance means nothing to them. They blow it off. If it's a command of God and they're not doing it, then they're living in habitual sin. What might that habitual sin say? They're not really saved. Preacher, are you saying you've got to be a, a church member to be saved? That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying if you are genuinely saved, I think over the course of your life, your life as a believer in Christ, you are going to want to be with the people of God in worship and fellowship and service. Church men, don't anybody go out of here saying preacher said church membership saves. No, it doesn't. But a church, uh, but a genuinely saved person is going to want to be among God's people doing what God tells us to do. Will you say something with me? Listen to what I'm You are not a Christian just because you say you are. Will you say that with me? I am not a Christian just because I say I am. The New Testament consistently says if you are genuinely a Christian, your life is going to show it. Again, we all sin. We all stumble into sin. We, we, we disobey God. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about your lifestyle. What does your lifestyle say? The consistent testimony of your life. It's going to reveal. Now one last thing in closing. When he talks about meeting together and encouraging one another. I open with church history. I want to close with Baptist history. What's one of our precious distinctives in Baptist history? And by the way, I, I believe it, okay? I want to be clear on that. One of our distinctives in Baptist history is what? The priesthood of the believer. 
What's the priesthood of the believer mean? It means that you don't need a human priest like me. I don't need a human priest to go to God. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our high priest. Every one of us can go before the Lord through Jesus. The priesthood of every believer. But here's where we, di- oh, here's where we mess up on that distinctive. Here's where we misunderstand it. Some people think because I believe in the priesthood of the believer, I can be a lone, a lone ranger Christian. I don't need anybody else, and I can just do my own thing. Then how in the world are you going to obey the admonitions of Scripture? To be in a church family, serving God with your gift, encouraging one another, being accountable to a body of believers. You can't be a lone ranger and do that. Yes, priesthood of the believer, as far as going before God, you don't need a human. But folks, in the body of Christ, we need each other. We need each other. Encourage one another. And chapter 10 is going to tell us to do it all the more, seeing that the day is approaching, the day of Christ. Would you bow in prayer with me, please? Thank you for the extra time today. I do that from time to time like every week, right? Not long though, going back to two services, I'll have to stop. Anyway, people say amen. Close, bow your heads, close your eyes if you would. As we close, I I want you to understand that the law that was given by Moses will not save. While the law came by Moses, John 1.17 says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you experienced His grace and truth? If you know Christ already, I want you to understand that there is no excuse for not pressing on in our Christian faith in the midst of trials. You are to look to Jesus. I am to look to Jesus. We belong to Him. And so we can have every confidence that He will take care of His own. He alone has the words of eternal life. Then I also want to ask you, what does your life communicate? Does your life demonstrate that you're wheat? Or does your life demonstrate that you're a tear? Again, not an isolated sin I'm talking about. I'm talking about the pattern of your life. What's your life say? If your life is characterized by darkness, by sin, by disobedience. 1 John chapter 1 is very clear. You are not a Christian. And so there ought to be calls for alarm. But calls for great encouragement if your lifestyle communicates light.
And finally, I want to ask you to examine whether or not you're an encouragement to your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And if you're not, why not? We need each other. Don't ever forget that. We need each other.